This is Daniel Fagellin. You're listening to the AI in Business podcast, where non-technical professionals stay ahead of the AI curve. If you're not planning on learning to write Python yourself, but you do want to identify high ROI AI use cases and see an AI strategy through to deployment, you found yourself in the right place. In this particular episode, we're going to be talking about the applications of AI and IoT in the enterprise. Leveraging IoT, in other words, extracting data from physical things in the world, presents a whole suite of unique challenges that many applications focused solely in the digital world do not have to overcome. But if you are making equipment that you are using in a manufacturing plant, or you're making products that then end up in somebody else's manufacturing plant or somebody else's or in somebody else's work environment, and you have to be able to pull data from those products, you're forced to deal with that messy physical world, and there's a lot of unique lessons to be learned there. Our guest this week is Chris Joint. At the time of the recording of this episode, Chris Joint was with PTC, a multi-billion dollar software firm based up here in the Boston area. And in this episode, Chris walks us through some actual applications of artificial intelligence and AI of artificial intelligence and IoT in the enterprise, in addition to some of the most important lessons learned for leaders, including how to think about getting started about these projects. There's a lot of ways to go wrong when it comes to sensors and data streams in the real world, and Chris is frank enough to be able to bring to bear some of his most important lessons learned and share them with us in this episode. This episode is brought to you by PTC. For more information about reaching Emerge's global audience, stay tuned to the outro of this episode. Without further ado, let's fly in. This is Chris Joint here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Chris, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, I know today we're going to be talking about two different kinds of AI use cases in sort of the manufacturing world. There's the manufacturing itself, and then there's what happens to this smart product when it's out in the world. I definitely want to dive into both, but let's let's talk about within the manufacturing plant first. You guys do a lot of this work. There's so much value in prediction, but it is so hard to put a finger on how to make that prediction valuable. What's a use case that could be fun to discuss here? Yeah, so I think things tend to flow from, you know, what is the business goal, right? You know, what are you really trying to achieve in your manufacturing? And it tends to be based on, you know, production efficiency and production of quality parts and, and quality equipment, right? So a lot of times I think focusing on the on the quality part can be very fruitful in a machine learning exercise, right? Where we're trying to, you know, maximize that. Quality issues are expensive, right? Quality and 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 the later you find out about it, the worse, right? If it yeah. gets to the customer, you know, that you're shipping to and it's a quality issue there, you got a real problem, right? If you catch it earlier on, you're better off. And if you can see it before it happens and avoid it, you're, you're, you're better off there. So one of my favorite customers was working in the quality space, you know, or working on the quality of their, their parts that they're manufacturing. They are a tier one auto supplier and, you know, their equipment Without exaggeration, it saves people's lives, right? It's very important that they maintain the utmost, you know, quality standards that, that they can and they have, right? They've they've invested over the years in getting data about their processes. They've invested in, you know, quality inspections and, and gathering good data there. We started working with them as, you know, their engineering team and their manufacturing teams were coming together and saying, okay, how can we take the next step? Right. What can we do here? 
you know, especially in some of our newer, well-connected facilities, right? How do we use this data to drive the outcomes that we care about, right? Quality, quality, quality. That's the outcome we care about. So what they did is they, they worked with us. And I love this use case because it shows that, you know, deploying the, the fanciest model isn't always the cool thing, right? They did the fancy machine learning modeling in sort of a development phase, right? And that was about finding the patterns that were, that were meaningful. What were the things that impacted quality, right? And going through a process of working with engineering and manufacturing experts, right? Quality experts, shop floor operators, and saying, you know, here's the patterns that machine learning identified. Like, does this make sense? Why would this be happening? Is there a story or a narrative that matches this data, right? So if we're seeing something like when shift change happens and a part changeover over here happens, right? And there's this temporal component to what we're seeing with, you know, on the machines and the machine conditions, right? When all of that happens, you know, we see sort of an uptick in quality issues, right? Why, why would that be happening? Does that make sense? Like, yes or no? And then, and then going from there and iterating and refining and asking better, better questions with the machine learning, sort of in like a discovery mode, right? And then once we had those patterns really identified and figured out, what they ended up putting into production was quite simple. What they put into production was actually just some statistical models that were very well tuned to measuring variation at the spots that matter, right? These are the things that really matter and are really driving quality and we have to keep a closer eye on. And they tightened up some of those statistical controls and then worked to iterate on the user experience a a good bit too, to say what information needs to be provided to the operator in real time because it's the operator who's going to make that decision. It's the operator who's driving quality, right? The data scientist, God, we love them, right? They, they did good work, but we need to focus on the operator here. And they did that, you know, so what they're giving to the end user isn't just like, you know, turn the, turn the switch now because we said so, right? It's like, here is the relevant information that you need to make a good decision. And there's trust in the operator's expertise there because they were part of the process. And that drove big time returns for them in the, in the quality space. Got it. So there's a couple of things to dive into here. And there's a lot of sort of, I guess, commonalities from use cases that we've seen that that might be worth calling out. One of them is kind of a a crawl, walk, run. You know, there's certainly much more value in starting with having our data house in order and making sense of it and asking which of this is valuable as opposed to, can we feed this stuff into some kind of really cool algorithm and get some kind of a really cool result? You know, that's that's not really the goal. At the end of the day, if, if you could use, you know, the most boring regression analysis on three meager streams of data and it drove huge value, who really cares? Right. So, right. so there was a, a crawl, walk, run element here of, of understanding the data and figuring out which of this is relevant and then only dialing in. Like you said, the application was somewhat simple, but the decision-making was a real team sport. The other part here that you talked about was focusing on, on the user experience. You know, From our experience in the manufacturing space, all the more important because maybe these folks are even less used to having to adopt some new Gmail plugin add-on for their such and such every day, right? Some new interface. The, the closer it is to whatever they're already using, however they're already working, the better in medical and, and in manufacturing. I mean, all industries, but, but I would say maybe especially in those. What were some of the lessons that you guys learned in kind of making this digestible for that end user? Well, I mean, that is key to, to driving ROI. I mean, that's, that's, what we, that's what we learned. I mean, you can 
you can put a model into production, you can score against against a model, but if the results are not interpretable and actionable to the end user, that you're not going to get the results out of the predictive model, right? So it's it's a last mile problem, and if you don't solve for the last mile, you're not going to get the ROI that you're looking for. So that's kind of what we learned there. I think the other thing is just the importance of keeping them involved in the process, right? So there, there, certainly there's a change management aspect to this here, where if you drop something on somebody and say, this is the new way you do your job because the higher ups figured it out, like, good luck. They're not going to respond well, right? Yeah. But when they understand how it works, when they understand why we're doing it, when they are part of that process, you know, we have a much better, we have a much better result. So that's part of change management. That's sort of some of the, the soft skills and the culture side of things. You know what I mean? But but also, you know, it's it's injected into into the models itself, right? The 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 operators have a lot of knowledge, and and you know, working with them during that develop development process, and they can say, you know, this is how I make these decisions. These are, for example, trade offs I must consider. Like, sure, the we I have you know, an AI model that might be predicting this one thing here, right? But I have to actually balance it against against something else. The, that, that My real decision that I'm trying to make has multiple factors to it. So I don't, you, you don't want to just tell that person what to do, right? And it, yeah. all the time, you have to understand how they're doing their job and give them the information that they need to make a better decision. Yeah. And, and also, I guess, even if there's a human factor here, too, like you mentioned with change management, which arguably we might say is harder than the data science itself is the change yeah, management yeah. around all this stuff. I think everybody ends up learning that the hard way. But we could argue from a change management perspective, not only do we, let's just pretend you guys and your team, you work with so many teams, you look at their equipment, you look at how they're using their equipment, you literally know exactly how they make decisions. Even then, it makes sense to have them as part of the discussion because then there's some psychological buy-in for when it actually hits the ground too. Of course, in the real world, they are going to have some secrets and some understanding that really are important for for the process to be successful. But there's mm-hmm. also the the psych part. And was there a bit of an experience of kind of finding who your champions were there, who could really believe in this and breathe a little life into it so they felt like it was theirs on the operator side? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there was sort of the the train the trainer right approach and, and finding those finding those leaders who were going to embrace embrace change and and champion that for their colleagues and coworkers right and that's a lot of that is that's that's important you know it speaks to the quality of some of the organizations that we're lucky to work with right because that's because that's beyond the, the technology piece, right? That the technology can't tell you <laughs> exactly how to work with human beings and to get them to be to be proud of their work, right? And and say, you know, my my quality scores, you know, on my shift are improved by what we're doing here with this yeah. new application, yeah. right? And that you know what I mean? Yeah, and certainly not everybody's going to have that perspective. Although it, it sounds as though what you're saying is being able to have people with buy-in who are excited to drive change, who want to be maybe part of some kind of a real improvement effort, clearly critical. The one other thing I want to touch on for this use case, and I know we've got another one that's going to be fun to explore as well, is around kind of that crawl, walk, run. You know, you talked about kind of getting the initial data together and figuring out, hey, what are the small bits of this that are going to drive value, where it's not actually going to be complicated. It's going to be the stuff that matters. What was the team collaboration process like and just the process in general like 
to get that those early distinctions made? Because it sounds like that was a huge driver of the value here. Sure, sure. So you know you have you have your your engineering folks, you have your your operators and your you know people on the manufacturing floor. You have you know quality analyst type of people as well, and then you have your data scientists and your your technologists and platform experts, right? And you need all of those those views, and they they have to collaborate. So so you have your you have your engineers who can tell you this is what we're measuring. This is how this is what the data is about, right? Like you know this is this is what it means, yep. right? And then you yep. can have the the shop floor people tell you, you know, how they're using that and what the impact of it is, right? And, and you know, maybe edge cases and scenarios that engineering doesn't necessarily have in their purview of like what might be happening with, with the data. For example, like cleaning machines or, or shift change or things like that that have an effect. And then you have your quality analysts who are, who are looking at this data and they are saying, here's the outcomes of interest. Here's what we have. Here's the analysis that we've done in the past. And like, here's kind of like the places we know we want to start looking, right? Here's sort of a bunch of hypotheses that we might have that we might want to use machine learning to learn about and predict and what have you. And then you have your technologist people who are like, yeah, this is all great. We need to have two lenses here, the kind of one foot in the realm of data science and discovery right and then the other foot in in like how in a real time world how might we actually deploy something right cuz you can go and build all kinds of models right but if you forget that second view and what you've done to the data it makes it unrecognizable to what that data looks like in in the real world then you're going to end up with something that you can't really deploy right so working together and having that that domain expertise to really say how do we bring all these pieces together? What types of questions do we ask of the data? How are we going to structure it? And then ultimately, like, what do we prototype and deploy? Like, those people need to be in the room and, and working together. And at times, you know, it's different different languages. But thankfully, that's why people like me have a job, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, and that's that's what we do is, is we bring people together from different disciplines and we collaborate around a common vision right? Of like, what is the goal? What are we aiming at? Is it it's quality improvement in this case? And how do we, how do we like iterate till we get there? You know? Yeah. They, they don't tell you that a facilitating collaboration is actually 80% of what, you know, is going to drive value when you're doing custom AI solutions, but everybody learns the same lesson on that front. So yes, certainly lots of different perspective. And I think you've kind of called out some of the ways that those different views are important. Did you have to get these people together in kind of a I imagine there's some sort of a structured process. In other words, hey, we're going to meet together. We're going to need a main stakeholder champion from, you know, tech, engineering, data science, and they're going to meet together with us in this kind of a format X number of times a week until we get to this kind of a deliverable. Was there sort of a line in the sand there? Did you guys have to kind of play it by ear based on when people were available? How do you structure a process to to actually make that collaboration work? Because as you know, working with important people with important jobs, you know, tough always to wrangle the time there. How do you make sure that that collaboration can happen? Yeah, it comes down a lot of times to executive leadership. When executives say, do AI, I want you guys to do an AI thing. I'll check back on you in six months. Yeah, it's no good. Right? That's no good. When the executives are learning about the process, right? They're learning about how AI works. They're understanding their own data. 
right? And they're they're involved and they're they're giving leadership and, and also helping to. I use a terrible analogy. This might be cheesy sometimes, but yeah, go but for it. I use the analogy of like the Lord of the Rings, right? So <laughs> in that in that movie, it's like we know where we need to go, right? We have no idea the adventure and all of the things that are going to happen on the way there. But, you know, knowing where we need to go, keeping focused on that, rolling with things as we go, right? That's what executive leadership is for, right? And, and as, they, as they are learning about their, their own processes and removing roadblocks for, for their people, that's super critical. When we don't have that, when it's like, hey, guys, you know, go off in the labs and make, make magic things happen. It's like, that's when you end up with something that either does not get deployed or there's there's just all kinds of mismatched expectations and it doesn't work yeah, right when executive yeah. leadership is stays in the game and I'm not I'm not saying they need to be deep in the weeds and and you know talking about the weightings of, of neural nets or anything like that but they need to stay involved they need to stay on top of the process and understand how it's unfolding and, and keep the ball moving big time yep being able to have some level of buy-in that this is a process rather than a you know, a magic bullet that'll happen when they don't pay any attention is makes all the difference in the world. And I imagine it makes a difference no matter whether the use case is inside or outside the manufacturing plant. A lot of your guys' work has to do with equipment that's in the field. So after something is produced, some kind of smart piece of equipment, whether it's, you know, an engine of some kind or some electronic or whatever the case may be, those things still need to be maintained, just like the equipment inside the manufacturing plant needs to be maintained. What's a good example of some of those in the field maintenance use cases for AI? that might make this more tangible for the listeners. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you, I appreciate that. Because it is a different world, right? Once you look outside of the factory, you have different objectives, really, right? You have different users, you have different data, and you have different processes, right? So it's like, what are we going to build? Who's it going to impact? What's the raw material we have to work with from a data standpoint? All of that's different. I really do enjoy the smart connected products world, right? Because we tend to have a lot of data about assets that are similar. And we, we tend to, as long as we have you know, connected equipment that has been well designed and thoughtfully designed, we tend to have a lot of uh, a target rich environment, if you will. Yeah. Which yeah. is like, which is a double edged sword, right? That, that's a double edged sword. It's like you can have so many targets that it's like, where do we start? What do we focus on? And there's a lot of work that needs to be done kind of in that strategic thinking domain, right? To figure out where do we start and how do we evolve towards something that ultimately is going to help our end customer, right? And, you know, what does that look like from an AI perspective, right? Do we start with kind of simplistic AI and do we have a desire to evolve all the way towards something that's like somewhat autonomous, right? And helping our customers to bring more automation to their industrial processes. You know, in the, most of our customers with smart connected products are also selling into the, the industrial space. So one of the stories that I, that I really like, and one of my favorite customers, took a similar to our smart connected products example, took a similar crawl, walk, run approach. Okay. Yep, yep. They have a pretty good vision of where they want to go with things. And, and where they want to go with things is... We do not want to just throw up data at our end customer and hope that they are like cool connected product that makes lots of data noises. And, <laughs> you know, I, I could, uh, you know what I mean? They, they, don't, they don't want to do that. So where they have started is said, let's get with what's critical. 
let's do the work to define KPIs for them, give them access to that and give them like reports and charting and things that really help them see the health of the equipment over time, see benchmarking and things like that and get you know a good solid view of health and performance of that equipment. In this example, this is a customer who makes things that move that move air, right? In industrial processes, okay. blowers, you know, suction thingies. Uh, <laughs> if, it, if it moves, if it moves air, they're they're doing it, right? They're in that game. And there's and, a market a for times, everything. There's a market for everything. I know, I know. <laughs> I, and it, one of the fun parts of my job is I get to learn crazy stuff like this. Yeah, and 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 how it works. But they also have, you know, systems of things. They might have multiple blowers kind of working together, right? And their customers industrial process is impacted by the quality and performance of a number of assets working together, right? So what does their end customer need? How do they support them? How do they drive higher performance with with their equipment so that they can, you know, command the the margins that they do in the marketplace and and have the the brand quality recognition that they do, right? And also run a more efficient business, right? Where they're, where they're preventing problems and they're able to, when they see something happening, they're able to diagnose it better remotely and, and solve it much faster, right? So, so if um, just to make this tangible, Chris, not to interrupt here, but just to, for the audience, I know, uh, you know, we've talked about kind of moving air generally. It, would it be safe? I, I just want to make sure it is, we can paint a mental visual for the audience because that's super important. Would it be safe to say maybe there's a, you know, a, a gigantic hotel somewhere that has a a big like kind of ac sort of circulation process or maybe there are you know airports that have something like that they need to kind of take air out of one place into another maybe a manufacturing plant where some of the air is not exactly good for people to be breathing or something i mean what what what's a i guess a representative example could we use a building for kind of the mental model for people kind of a fan blowing air within a building to be a, a good yeah, mental model yeah yeah that's that's a perfect example sure. that's a okay. perfect example great, great. Right? fantastic um, so in those scenarios, right, you have a machine that you can measure the performance with critical KPIs that are saying, you know, what are, we have inputs into the machine and then we have the key outputs is how is, how is that air moving, right? Is it moving like it, like it's supposed to or, or like we expect it? So we start in that crawl phase and kind of how do we, how do we define and model and aggregate the data in such a way that makes it easy for the end user who's, who's trying to check on those systems and make sure they're working well make sure that they have access to, to what they need. Great, right? The next phase is then starting to look at those diagnostics, right? Finding the, the signals and patterns in the data that show us, you know, when something might be going awry, right? So one of the things that we can find is, you know, we don't necessarily have all the time, here is a, like a binary thing, like the thing shut off and it's down and here's a discrete error code. But what we have is like a slow, performance degradation that there is, if we look at it historically, there is a spot in time. There's an inflection point that's like, huh, you know, that started to change at a, at a specific time, right? Well, what if we knew about that, right? What if we got a flag when it started to change before it got to a point where it was, you know, performance isn't what it should be. We're going to have to do something about that. And what they did actually was they took a approach to anomaly detection I thought was pretty slick. And w- what we're doing is saying, these machines have 
tight relationships between the variables. I mean, they're well-designed, well-engineered machines. And when you have, you know, voltage and you, you have vibration and you have airflow, you have these readings coming off of the machines, right? We expect those things, one, to impact the other in a well-known and tight relationship, right? So what that allows them to do is to, under the hood, you know, actually take a predictive approach and say, airflow, you know, on this machine right now should be X, Y, Z, right? And compare that to the actual reading. And when that's off, there's something off, there's a gap between those things larger than like a small margin of error. That's when they can say, yep, something is worth investigating here, right? And, and that makes their, their internal processes, you know, their people who are monitoring equipment all over the world, it makes them smarter. It gives them the ability to proactively reach out to customers, right? That's going to impact their customer processes. And we've tested this historically to say, okay, let's look at those anomalies, right? And when we, when we throw that flag, you know, does that actually correlate to a real life event downstream? In fact, it does. And what they're able to do is avoid, you know, some really costly downtime events and some really costly performance events that the ROI for them is, is really clear. But it comes down to like focus on the user, right? Having very good understanding of their data and having like a strategy as far as where they want to get to that that crawl, walk, run makes sense. The run phase will be there too, right? The run phase will be there because as they're doing this, we're building up their strategic data set, right? Which opens up a whole number of doors of, of opportunity for them down the road to get into, you know, what kind of things might they actually want to bring more automation to, right? What decisions can they offer better AI support to, right? And, and it really opens up the doors. We'll pick this apart. So this is a great one to start off with. Obviously, you know, a, a firm whose equipment, I imagine sometimes, you know, a fan is not always, you know, or some kind of air moving device in a giant industrial building or commercial building or whatever it is. It's not like we can just Number one, we don't want anything breaking down anyway. But number two, if it does, you know, it's probably a real hassle to get to these things sometimes, certainly a real hassle to replace them sometimes. So anything we could do to prevent that altogether or to diagnose it more quickly would be, you know, a clear, clear ROI. My guess is sort of twofold here. I'm going to check in on two things. One, you'd mentioned sort of they figured out this unique correlation that you had talked about. My supposition here is that we would have need to look at a lot of failure cases to be able to come up with that hypothesis because it's it's very unlikely that you could take even the most experienced guy that you have in the field and say, hey, guy we have in the field, Jeremy, what's the vibration sensor reading if we put it on the top right corner of this machine and the heat sensor reading if we put it on the bottom left corner of this machine? What would those be for whenever this thing breaks down? Right? The hypotheses about that are horrendous to guess yeah. because human beings don't really have that. Right. So what did you need to do to actually find that correlation with enough confidence to want to bake it into their products? Because that's another big effort to put forth. You obviously need to know that that's going to correlate to results. What did you have to look at historically in order to, to draw that conclusion? It's just that. It's, it's having a good amount of historical data, right? Because when a human is able to say, well, something, something's different, right? Yeah. Where AI shines is being able to find those things in a in a that are more subtle and finding them earlier, right? Because by the time a, a human notices, it's like, well, something something's definitely different. So having like good, clean historical data, right? Looking at 
you know, those, those temporal patterns over time and, and being able to see, here's the historical events. Like, let's look through those failure events and let's look through how did that KPI track over time and what's, what's the time pattern? You know, that was really key. In this case, I mean, time is a major, is a major factor, as I think with, with most you know, time series data that you sure, get sure. from sensors, you know, the, the temporal pattern matters, you, you know, and, and being able to say, what chunks of time should we be looking at, right? And that's where some domain expertise and some tinkering helps is saying what chunks of time, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. For example, if I'm looking at a blower and trying to say, is everything good on this blower or is there something that's a little out of whack? Maybe it doesn't matter that much what happened last year, right? Maybe, yeah, maybe what yeah. happened in the last 10 seconds is, is much more important. So we should chunk our time views accordingly. Right. And we should, we should really, you know, look at, look at those things. So yeah, I mean, just having really good historical data, having much analysis had already been done. These are customers who are, you know, committed to their practices, right? That this is not somebody who has never taken a look at their data yep, before, yep. right? <laughs> this yeah. is somebody who has been committed and done lots of quality analysis and done lots of performance analysis. So we're coming in and saying, you know, machine learning. Is, is going to help drive this to the next level, you, you know, and not just saying, all right, you've, you've never looked at this before. Let's see what happens. Much harder plug situation. In, plug it into AI, yeah. Yeah, yeah. much harder. So you, you guys were fortunate in working with folks who had two things that in all seriousness are actually not hyper common right now. Maybe in five years they will be. One is somebody that has a reasonable understanding of what their digital transformation vision with data looks like. So what are we turning into knowing that AI and unlocking the value of data will be part of that? Actually having a some even remotely coherent vision outside of buzzwords at a C-suite level is definitely like let's call it the minority of companies. <laughs> let's just safely yeah, say yeah, that. No, I agree, I agree. So uh, that's 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 important. And number 2, they had they had a reasonable understanding of their existing data assets. Obviously, you guys would have had a little bit more handholding to do if they were farther kind of early in the process. But it sounds like with these folks in particular you know, they had done a lot of great thinking and it was about enabling those initial insights and figuring out how yep. do we bake that into a better product. Yep. And and I mean I mean for us, these these are customers that have been our customers for quite a while, right? So they've used our other they've used some of our other products that are key sources of data, right? So so we've been working with them for, for quite a while. And and I guess part of what makes it a good relationship and and fruitful, right, is that they have some of that digital transformation and they kind of trust us in that sense, right? Where we're, we're collaborating and saying, this is where we see the, the industry and the space as a whole going. And they're nodding their heads and saying, yeah, you know, we think we want to move generally in that type of direction, but a little bit more like this here and a little bit more like that here. And they're able to articulate a vision as well. And, and we collaborate and, and can bring that together, right? So, so that's, I think, one of the ways that, that we're really successful I'll be honest with you, where my job is a nightmare and where I'm, I know I'm doomed to failure is when, it, when, I, when I talk to somebody and they don't have, those, they don't have yeah. those things or it's like, fill out this sheet and tell me if you meet these technological requirements. And I'm like, can I ask you why? And they're like, we don't, just, just answer. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, where, what's the target? What are we shooting at? Like, I want to help you. Yep. You know what I mean? So beginning with that vision, super important. As you had said, I think a couple lessons come through loud and clear in, in both of these examples, Chris. One is, you know, the importance of the team sport, you know, a lot of collaboration in both of these examples, and also a lot of focus on 
what do we ultimately want to turn into? And then what's the crawl, walk, run way to unlock our data to help us get there? Doing that in an intelligent way felt to me like the commonality. And they also felt like really relevant lessons for the listeners. And I know that's all we had for time in this episode. But Chris, I'm really glad you were able to be here and share some of your experience with us on the show. Thanks again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My pleasure. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Chris for being able to join us and thank you to you for being able to tune in and listen all the way through to the end of this episode. As mentioned before, this episode was brought to you by PTC. If you're interested in reaching Emerge's global executive audience, you can go to emerj.com slash ad1. That's AD like advertise and then the number one, whether it's sponsored podcasts, webinars, co-branded research, demand generation, or more. If you sell AI products or services into the enterprise, your customer is already here on Emerge. We work with vendors around the world to help them reach their growth goals. Again, you can learn more about that at emerj.com slash AD1. I always have fun diving into use cases. Certainly enjoyed this episode. I hope you did too. I appreciate you being here with us and I look forward to catching you in the next episode. You're on the AI and Business Podcast. <laughs>